And welcome to another episode of Since S-I-N-T-S, Studies in the New Testament, with your host, yours truly, Seamus. That's me. Anyway, this is a, going to be a short one. I happen to be traveling currently on the road or in the air, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, will determine where I am, I guess, currently. But because that's the case, the audio quality is slightly lesser than normal, and I hope you guys can forgive the slight reduction in audio quality because I am recording this without the use of my incredibly high um, quality microphone. Instead, I'm doing it right from my MacBook Pro's built-in internal microphone. So hopefully this is adequate enough for it not to be a huge distraction for today's lesson. And it will be a short one today. Essentially, we are going to try and work through the rest of Mark chapter 2. We are at the very tail end of it, right here. And uh, maybe get a little bit into the beginnings of Mark chapter 3. And because I'm traveling on the road, I do not have the aid of my extensive library behind me while I record this, so unfortunately that means the resources will be not as greatly read from. I'll be quoting most of everything I have from memory and doing my best to make sure that I point everybody in the right direction so that you can fact check me after listening to this particular episode. As always, I encourage that you listen to not only me, but you always fact check everything that I do say um, and scrutinize it at the scholastic level, please. Don't just take my word for it. And uh, especially in an episode like this, where I cannot read from the source directly quoting it, or even may not be able to give you the exact uh, book, chapter, and verse on particular quotations that I am pulling from memory, I'm still going to do my best to give you guys uh, what you deserve here for this for this podcast. Uh, I want to take this moment to thank all of the Patreon supporters uh, on this channel. You guys make this possible, so thank you so much. Um, you also make this very enjoyable. I enjoy getting all of your questions and talking with some of you personally on the Discord server and getting to know some of you guys and hear your stories. It's been a really interesting and awesome experience for me. So I uh, just want to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters. Thank you once again. You guys are the best. And for those of you who are not Patreon supporters who are listening to this on YouTube for free, um, if you want early access to this particular podcast, uh, we usually release this podcast about two weeks after it comes out on the Patreon Um, But still, if you're listening to this on YouTube and you're subscribed to the channel, we really appreciate all of your guys' support. Every subscription helps. Every like and every comment uh, really does help. It helps the algorithm and and it supports the ministry overall. So thank you to everybody that's supporting us in some capacity, whether or not it's monetarily. Uh, We really appreciate that at all capacities. So thanks once again. And now, without further ado... 
Let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're hitting Mark 2, verse 23. I'm actually going to switch uh, things here. I'm reading from the NASB, NASB, the New American Standard Bible, primarily because, again, I'm on the road, uh, and so my physical copy of the TLV is away, and so I've got my Bible software pulled up instead. And the Bible software I have does not have the Tree of Life version installed, so I'm reading from the NASB 1995, which is installed on my Bible software. And I think this translation is an adequate uh, replacement or substitute, substitute uh, for especially for this particular topic. There's really no need to uh, uh, go super in-depth with the Greek here. Uh, it's more or less a context thing. So let's go ahead. We'll start out and read it. Mark 2, 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I'm actually going to pause right here. Uh, I typically hear in Christian circles uh, that when they try to explain this verse away, especially the cryptic answer that Yeshua is going to give here in a minute, um, they say that this is not actually a violation of the Sabbath, that this is more to do with some man-made tradition or even an oral Torah uh, forbidding people from picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. That's actually not true. This is not an oral Torah prohibition. This is a Torah prohibition. One of the 39 melachot, uh, for those of you who do not know, there are 39 prohibitions laid out in the Torah itself, uh, and among those prohibitions um, are reaping and sowing. And so there's certain forms of work, and melacha is just the Hebrew word for work in this case. And it's not laborious work, it's the work that you're forbidden from doing on the Sabbath day. Um, if you're looking for the particular list of the 39 melachot, um, I, would, I would Google them. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember the passage directly off the top of my head, but uh, it comes from the fact that right before... Uh, God gives the instructions to build the tabernacle. He first and foremost begins with, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then he proceeds to give all the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. The rabbis have uh, long agreed that what this means to say is that you are not allowed to build the tabernacle on the Sabbath. And any of the work associated with building the tabernacle on the Sabbath that even though the tabernacle is incredibly important, right? The temple here on earth is is incredibly important thing. The work required to build a tabernacle is not more important. And that actually, this, this little fact is going to come in uh, into context here in a second, which is really, really interesting how we have this contrast. But uh, so any, any work that it would take to build the tabernacle, which includes many things, 39 to be exact, uh, you're not allowed to forsake the Sabbath in order to do this. And reaping and sowing is one of them. There's a uh, you know tearing and tying a knot and loosening a, loosening a knot. There's there's the whole 39 list you can easily uh, Google. The uh, 39 Sabbath prohibitions for a full exhaustive list and uh, where they come from in Scripture. But this is uh, universally recognized. This is not an oral Torah tradition thing. This is much more a solid Torah commandment. Um, it's not explicit. It does not say don't reap and don't sow on the Sabbath. It's it's a little bit more remez or 
beneath the surface level, so to speak, but it's still, this is not like some sort of oral tradition that the rabbis came up with. Um, this, this was universally agreed upon. So and we know that Yeshua actually accepts this premise. Uh, and the reason is, as we're about to move on for the rest of the passage, he actually does not, in this case, say anything about the traditions of men or anything like that. Uh, he actually does not rebut or refute at all the claim that they are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Instead, he justifies their actions on the Sabbath, which is an important notation. Usually if Yeshua has an issue with a particular oral tradition or some sort of ruling of the rabbis that would otherwise be a tradition to forsake a commandment, he, he's very vocal about that. But here, he has accepted the premise of the Pharisees' question, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, and uh, I think I've mentioned this before, because the Pharisees are actually addressing Yeshua directly here, this is another of the many indicators that the Pharisees recognized Yeshua as a fellow Pharisee. Um, and I believe I covered that in my previous episode on since. But this is another, uh, Pharisees only ever talk to other Pharisees. Pharisees don't correct the disciples of another Pharisee because that's not their place. It's a little bit like a military rank structure in which an officer wouldn't go to another officer's subordinates and correct him. Instead, the officer would go to that officer and tell him about his subordinate that needs correction. Um, otherwise, you're kind of jumping the chain of command and stepping on another command's toes. It's it's uh, uncouth to do so, and this was true also with the Pharisees in their day. So they address him specifically because it is not their place for them to correct his disciples because they may have a different halacha or some sort of other reasoning, and uh, so that it's, it's a chain of command thing. This is a very hierarchy-style society in ancient Israel, um, and that little fact will come in handy as we move on, but... I believe I've been long-winded enough about just these three verses and have done nothing but really preface, so I haven't even really gotten into the meat of these three verses, but uh, let's, let's move on and then we'll conclude. And so he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abi, Abiathar, excuse me, the high priest, and he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All right. Really, really cryptic answer here. I do not agree with the typical Christian uh, stance on this one that um, basically... The, the, the line of thought just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't really flow conversationally. Uh, to say that what Jesus is saying here is that he himself is greater than the Sabbath day uh, doesn't really answer the question. The Pharisees, why are your disciples breaking the Sabbath by picking grain? Uh, and so his answer is, because I'm better than the Sabbath, doesn't really quite make sense. Uh, I don't think it flows and it, and it leaves out this little justification here with uh, David in the bread for the sh uh, the showbread for the priests, and this is actually a story that's multiply attested independently 
with the other two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. Particularly Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, in my opinion, is the better of the three stories. It's the most, it's the most detailed. Um, I won't read it word for word, but he adds in that the uh, high priests in the temple uh, also break the Sabbath every Saturday. That's just a small detail. Uh, and uh, I, I like that particular addition to the detail <clears throat> because it creates a case. He's, he's essentially answering like a Pharisee would in creating a case. So what do I mean by that? Why do your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So he begins by, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry? So he, David, and uh, those who were with him were hungry. And they entered the temple of the um, high priest and they ate the showbread, which is, it's not lawful for anyone to eat that bread except for the high priest, or excuse me, except for the priests, right? And so David and his companions were not faulted for doing this thing, for eating the, the showbread, because there's a, a Jewish concept known as pikuach nefesh, which essentially translates to the preservation of life, uh, where it is okay to uh, transgress a negative commandment or a, a do not style commandment in order to save a life. In fact, you can, according to the doctrine of Pikuach Nefesh, you can basically forsake any commandment all but three for the sake of saving a life. Uh, those three commandments are adultery, idolatry, and murder. Those are the only three commandments you cannot break in order to save a life. So, he's creating a case here. Uh, and in Mark, he leaves out the uh, the temple um, addition with the breaking on the Sabbath, and it kind of I think that flows more conversationally. Matthew may have had access to a more extended version of this tradition uh, that Mark may not have had. Uh, for those of you who might be familiar with the Q document, uh, it is a theoretical document that was likely just a collection of sayings from the Master Yeshua that both Matthew and Mark have had 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 some sort of access to. Uh, Matthew seems to expand uh, or have some sort of access to additional traditions that are sayings from the master, uh, and so he improves upon them. Uh, Mark does not seem to have that same access. Um, however, so going to the Matthew example, he moves on to say that the that the priests essentially break the Sabbath every week just by virtue of the fact that they have to do work every Sabbath day. They have to make sure they're tending to the continual burnt offering and, and, uh, and the, the menorah candles, uh, excuse me, oil lamps. There's all manner of work that they would continue to do on the Sabbath. Uh, and so then he would, uh, he would conclude the argument with the way that uh, Mark sort of ends it here. Basically, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So, wh why, why does this answer seem to satisfy the Pharisees? There's actually no argument from the Pharisees after this, and we move immediately into chapter 3. So, why the silence? Because it's a good argument. Essentially, the case is, if David if, is, if David is going to represent human need, pikuach nefesh, right, the... Uh, he, the human need to eat because he's hungry and he and his men are hungry. 
if that is greater than the temple service, right? And the temple service is obviously greater than Sabbath day service. Well, then something greater is here. That's from Matthew uh, verse 8, I believe. 12 verse 8. Surely something greater is here. That something greater is human need. And he's showing a line of progression from the small to the great is a common rabbinic method of teaching where they would take, uh, they would justify the actions of a, of a minuscule matter and essentially blow it up into a larger matter saying that surely if the minuscule is treated such, then even more so the greater, the weightier matter, right? So from the small to the weightier to the small to the greater, uh, this uh, in Hebrew, it's, it's basically from the light to the heavy is how they how they word it. It's a style of rabbinic teaching. It's another reason that I have every reason to believe um, that Yeshua was a Pharisee because he spoke like a Pharisee, and this is was incredibly Pharisaic of him to do, to teach from the light to the heavy. Uh, so in his case here, uh, the heavy is essentially human need, right? And so if it's okay for humans to break the temple commandments because they are hungry, and it's okay for the temple to break the Sabbath commandments, well then, essentially, humanity is greater than the Sabbath. And I think this is an instance in which the phrase, the Son of Man, which is a Hebrew idiom to just mean mankind or humans or any person. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man. Um, sometimes he uses this phrase to refer to himself, but he doesn't always. And this is a case where I think he's not referring to himself in this particular case. Now that I know that that stands in uh, disagreement with typical Christian doctrine today, but uh, once again, I feel that conversationally in its context, the, the conversation flows better if we accept the premise that in this particular case, son of man just means mankind, right? So if we accept that premise and we sort of insert that meaning back over top of the son of man and continue to follow the conversation, I think it flows much better. It makes the most sense. Uh, and I know it stands against most of Christian doctrine, but um, I think I'm okay with that. So let's start with verse 27. If, if we keep this theme here, uh, Yeshua said to them, the Sabbath was made for mankind and not mankind for the Sabbath. So mankind is Lord even of the Sabbath. I think conversationally that makes the most sense. And that is a that directly answers the question that the Pharisees posed. So there's no difficulty here that you have to resolve with why the cryptic answer, why would he say something about himself being, you know, Lord or master of the Sabbath? That doesn't quite answer the question, um, at least adequately for me. It sounds very, I don't know, it just doesn't, quite sit right with me to say that and for the pharisees to just accept that as a as a suitable answer in my opinion and once again i think if we take this premise and accept it with this line of thought and with this flow this teaching style um this light to the heavy style teaching it's incredibly pharisaic of an answer and it's a very very good answer this is expertly crafted answer right here Again, Matthew's uh, version of this story is a little bit more detailed and adds the, the detail of the temple breaking the Sabbath. 
and where Marx leaves that out. But even leaving that out, uh, what you have is a really good counter to the question, essentially. And again, it to me, uh, this just screams Pharisee speak. It, it it talks like the Mishnah talks, in my opinion. So, moving on to chapter three. I'm only going to touch on chapter three because it is connected to uh, the last few verses of chapter two. Um, I, I think breaking the chapter here actually is an interesting choice, uh, and the original manuscripts did not have chapters and verse numbers, uh, and so I think just linking these two together makes the most sense contextually. Um, even though they are separate encounters, they have a similar theme, which is uh, very, very conducive to the style of this document, where everything is arranged by topic, not necessarily in some sort of uh, historical linear fashion um, like we're used to hearing today. That's just not the way they recorded history back then. It was much more uh, by topic or by theme rather than linear uh, like fashion like we're used to today. So, Mark 3, 1, he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. I do want to pause here, actually. Uh, there's, a, there's a type of belief that the injury or the illness had a connection to the spiritual state of the person, uh, and a withered hand uh, had something to do with essentially not uh, being a very giving sort of person, uh, not being charitable. Uh, so there's there's some sort of undertone here. Uh, now, there's not necessarily a direct connection. That's just, I, I think that it's worthy to be aware that there is an idiom Hebraically that speaks of people with a withered hand and having some sort of connection with that injury to their spiritual state of being, of being not a charitable person. Uh, so in a similar way that the, a bad eye is an idiom in and of itself. Uh, and we will get to that at, at some point in our, uh, much later in our commentary. So Mark uh, 3.2, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? And they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, began, uh, excuse me, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Okay, so the reason this is connected is because we're still talking about the idea of pikuach nefesh. Now, the first case was a little bit more obvious. They're hungry. Sustainability is important, and you don't want to starve on the Sabbath day. This this one, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> pun not intended, I, I assure you, but this one, on the other hand, is not so much a case of life or death or even hunger, but rather a state of his of his physical being that he's sort of been dealing with for however long. Um, and currently at this time period, whether or not healing on the Sabbath was permitted was actually still up for debate. 
Now, the school of Shammai uh, was very much against it. Uh, for the most part, the reason was that you don't want a physician trying to constant, you know, to do his job on the Sabbath day, uh, and then thus essentially end up forsaking the Sabbath day entirely. And so, by forbidding the healing on Shabbat, you you basically create a window for physicians and doctors and healers to actually not do any work on the Sabbath, uh, which would obviously be a violation even of the spirit of the law, uh, which was not really Shammai's motivation, but, you know, one, I think, can sympathize if you understand. Hillel was a little bit more of a lenient, uh, especially if it was going to be a miracle healing, and if it was going to help a person enjoy the Sabbath even more, uh, well, then you sort of have a sense of obligation to do this particular act for the person. Uh, and Yeshua seems to side with Hillel in this one, that doing good or doing harm, I think what he's trying to say is by leaving it alone, you're just sort of doing harm. And of course, to save a life or to kill, and they kept silent. This is in verse 4. This is a direct uh, reference to the idea of pichuach nefesh, to preserve life, right, to save a life. Uh, so he's talking exactly about that, and in the case of the man with the withered hand, uh, he's arguing essentially that what he's doing here is preserving life, uh, and not just keeping a man alive barely, but in doing so in such a way where this man can actually enjoy his Sabbath day for the rest of his Sabbath day, because uh, uh, Yeshua had the means and the ability to help this person uh, better to enjoy the Sabbath day. Uh, that's a much more lenient approach, but it's not unheard of in uh, ancient first century Pharisaic uh, Judaism, especially of the school of Hillel, most particularly. And so this, this uh, idea that they're going to accuse him, well, this is much more the school of Shammai, I believe, in, in my opinion, uh, that they're, they're out to get him on this one, because as far as they're concerned, this is a prohibition in their eyes. Uh, and so how to how they might destroy him. That's that's interesting. I'm trying to actually pull up the uh, the interlinear to see what that word is for destroyed. So hang here with me. Uh, to destroy, to put out of the way, abolish, render, to kill, to perish, ruin, destroy, lose. So that's the Strong's. The Strong's number itself is, uh, let's see, G622, for those of you. Uh, and I would, I don't have one with me, or I don't really even have the uh, ability to pull one up, but I prefer opening a lexicon instead of a Strong's. The Strong's really only tells you how a word was translated, and it really doesn't actually tell you what that word means. Now, you can gather pretty decently what that word might mean by the way that it's been translated, but keep in mind the Strong's is not a lexicon. It is a concordance of how that word was translated, how many times it was translated that way, and where. Uh, but it is not a lexicon, so it, it does not give you a dictionary definition of the word, technically speaking. It doesn't give you any etymology, uh, or any background that might be associated with that particular word. So I prefer to use a lexicon. You're going to get a much better idea of what that Greek means. 
uh, versus using a Strong's, all you're really going to get is what the King James translators thought that th- what they thought that that word means. So uh, just be aware when you're using a Strong's concordance that you're not holding a lexicon in your hand. So uh, anyway, that being said, uh, basically they're trying to take him down. Uh, some translations say to kill him, others say to destroy him. Um, I think, uh, I wish I had a lexicon in front of me, but uh, I don't see a malicious intent uh, you know, for an outright killing at this point quite yet. Um, so I think the NASB has done a good job here in rendering it as destroy, uh, is to like to bring him down, uh, maybe to bring his character down. A metaphorical death, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Uh, but I could be wrong, so please double check me on that, especially with a lexicon. Um, and the second I am able to, when I have uh, a moment of free time and I have another uh, access to my lexicon, I will double check that. Uh, so stay tuned for a future episode where I may be putting my foot in my mouth after saying this. But uh, what's that's fine. I'm human, uh, <laughs> and um, I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. Uh, so, yeah. I think that's a good place we will call it a day for for now. Um, but essentially the theme of today's episode was Pikuach Nefesh on Shabbat and what that means from our master's perspective. Uh, the, the school, the dominating school of thought at the time had a much more strict version, uh, which is actually true even to modern Judaism today. The idea of Pikuach Nefesh is that it can only be used uh, in activity that would directly save a life. And so if an activity won't directly save a life, it's still not permitted. Where Yeshua seems to take a little bit more of a lenient approach where uh, if, if, if doing a certain action that might be like healing on the Sabbath that might otherwise be forbidden from Shammai's eyes is going to help a man enjoy the Sabbath even more without outright breaking the Sabbath, right, to to a point where he's out spending money and um, and doing, and like starting a fire and, and things like that, right? But he obviously has an injury, uh, and if it can be helped, it helps right then and there, um, then that would help make his day better and he can enjoy the Sabbath even more. Uh, and same with the, the hungry disciples picking grain, um, again, that is that is actually a Sabbath violation, um, but they are basically living in abject poverty right now, so they don't really have access to a steady food supply or to make a, a double portion for themselves in preparation for the Shabbat. So they're gleaning from the fields, um, and so you know there's a, there's some leniency being given here in Yeshua's halacha, uh, so to speak. And for those of you again who don't know the word. Halacha is the Hebrew word for to walk, and legally speaking, it is the how you perform a commandment. Um, it is the way that you carry a commandment out. Uh, and every rabbi's halacha is a little bit different depending on whether or not he is more lenient or more strict in his observance or his interpretation on what the laws, what the spirit of the law is trying to get at. Uh, and so. That, that's the theme. Uh, I would recommend rereading these, uh, what, like less than 10, maybe 10 verses, 10 or 11 verses 
Uh, with that in mind, realizing that he's he seems to be trying to establish what Pikuach Nefesh means to him, uh, and Mark is passing down this from his perspective, but there's a direct correlation with Matthew chapter 12, verses 1, all the way through verses 14, and also Luke chapter 6. Um, I think it's at the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. But... Um, so it is multiply attested, which means historically, from the historian's perspective, what we have here is a tradition of Yeshua that is credible history. That this is a tradition that exists of uh, Yeshua that we can say basically for fact that he said these words, that he said something along these lines, and he taught this thing, uh, and that is multiply attested from independent sources and so we know that this can be trusted as credible history basically uh, so from the strict historian's perspective what we have here is a tradition of a sayings from the master yeshua that we can pretty confidently say that this actually happened even from the scholastic historian perspective uh irregardless of what we <laughs> excuse me i can't believe i just said irregardless regardless of uh what we might believe religiously uh, on what the Gospels say uh, and how we might treat them as the Word of God, putting all of that aside, we can say historically, even from the secular perspective, that this is a credible teaching uh, from the Master. So that I think that will be, that'll be it. I know I said we we're going to be ending it <laughs> a couple of times, and this is actually not a short episode. It's about 30 minutes long, 34 minutes. Um, wow, it's a lot of detail. Uh, hopefully I didn't talk your ear off too much or go off too much of a tangent. Um, once again, thank you to the Patreon supporters. Really appreciate you guys. Um, you're, you guys are awesome. You really help make this uh, come to life. And so, and for those of you listening on YouTube, thank you once again uh, for subscribing uh, and leaving a comment and hitting that like button. We really appreciate uh, all the support that you guys give us, uh, no matter how that support comes. So. Okay, I'm going to call it right there. That's enough. I'm done talking. <laughs> you guys have a wonderful day, uh, morning, afternoon, or night, wherever you are. Uh, thank you so much, and shalom aleichem. <laughs>